Paul says, verse 13, Therefore, let us not judge one another any more, but rather resolve this not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. For for whatever is not from faith is sin. And Father, we humbly just pause to ask for the help and the aid and the assistance of your Holy Spirit this morning to understand the scriptures that you have set before us in our passage. We ask that your Holy Spirit who inspired these things would now be our interpreter and our instructor and the very one who speaks to us the thought and intent and personal application you have for our hearts from these things. So Lord, prepare us accordingly, each one of us. Prepare us individually. You know what that means for each one of us. And we ask that we would not hear wise or persuasive words of a man, but experience that demonstration of your spirit and power speaking to our hearts. Bless your word, we ask and we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to consider this statement this morning as we look at this passage together, because I think it encapsulizes what this portion of scripture is about and that statement is this just because i may have the right to do something does not mean it's right to do it just because i may have the right to do something does not mean that it's right to do it that's what this section of scripture is now addressing for us as it continues to discuss what we might call christian liberties Now, it's almost a critical thing this week, especially in relation to what we just studied last week, to consider the backdrop of where we're now moving into this morning, because Paul is discussing, as he has been from Romans 14, the beginning of it, how believers, we talked about, will hold different opinions, different convictions and viewpoints about non-essential matters of the spiritual life. That's what Paul was talking about in the first 12 verses last week. Now, let me emphasize again, he's not talking about clearly addressed fundamental doctrines of New Testament Christianity. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not addressing here prohibitions of sinful practices that the Bible is very direct about. 
that the Bible speaks to very clearly that are sinful and wrong. Rather, he is talking about, as he said there in verse 1, about doubtful things. The implication, the idea of this section is areas that are not clearly addressed in the scripture. Topics and subjects which the Bible does not directly speak about or directly give a prohibition about in the Bible. Things that the Bible does not directly or specifically prohibit or the Bible maybe does not specifically address in regards to matters of spiritual life or what's acceptable and unacceptable. Now, in the Church of Rome, we saw last week two of the hot buttons or main issues in that church that Paul was addressing by way of example of this area was the observation of spiritual dietary habits, not health issues, but eating meat or eating only vegetables for a belief or conviction purpose in your own heart and also the observation of special days. Now, we also said in today's experience in our modern world, this same concept of non-essential issues, doubtful things, secondary matters that aren't clearly addressed in Scripture, that might apply for us in areas, for example, of, as I said last week, uh, you know, uh, the particular dress of a Christian or whether or not it's right for a Christian to drink a glass of wine together with their dinner if they're of legal drinking age or is it acceptable for a Christian to smoke cigarettes or cigars or uh, you know is it okay for a Christian to watch a, a rated R movie or certain types of movies uh, is it okay for Christians to to dance is it okay for a Christian to have a tattoo or a, a piercing of some sort on their body what about Christians and Christmas trees or Easter eggs and is it okay to observe certain things in regards to holiday traditions what about a Christian listening to a secular music song is that wrong is that spiritual is that unspiritual what about the observation of special days these are all areas that the scripture does not specifically specifically address these are certain areas where we don't find direct prohibitions and therefore they become matters of conviction they become matters of personal viewpoint a matter of conviction that individual believers are going to hold and different people for different reasons are going to have various opinions about them they're going to have differences of outlook on those things whether or not they will participate in them or whether or not they'll refrain from those things because they feel in their conviction that it's not right to do. And whether or not a person participates or refrains, as we talked about last week, that's okay. It's okay. These are areas of liberty where there's freedom to be fully convinced in your own mind. Paul said that last week. Let each be convinced in his own mind. You just have to work that out between you and Jesus. Some people are going to hold very strict and rigid beliefs whereby they won't do something or they will do something and they'll be very strict and rigid in regards to their convictions about those things. Other believers are going to be a little more settled and comfortable and participate in areas of liberty and they understand the grace of God and, and they're, they're comfortable between them and the Lord with doing certain areas of liberty where there's freedom to do such. But for love's sake, what Paul was saying to us last time is this is an area where we shouldn't be criticizing and judging and despising one another and making more over it than what it is. Primarily because Paul said last time we're not entitled to judge someone else's service. 
They're the Lord's servant. And to his own master, Paul said, a person is going to stand and fall and the Lord's able to make him stand. Paul said, what we should realize is that every believer's accountability is ultimately to the Lord. It's not to us. It's not on our end in these non-essential areas to lord it over other people's lives or to become their judge or play the Holy Spirit in their life in these areas of doubtful things that the Scripture does not directly address. We're to give people the freedom to hold a conviction and to realize ultimately they are accountable to Jesus. And that's between them and Jesus. And therefore, Paul said at the end of our study last week, verse 12, just reminding us, he said, so each of us shall give account of himself to God. So because we're all going to give account of ourselves to God, Paul says there's a few more things than we ought to talk about in regards to this area of liberties and the exercise of Christian liberties. He goes on verse 13 to say, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. So the beginning of verse 13 there, he, he makes a summary statement. It's almost as if the closing argument of verses 1 through 12, where he was emphasizing continuously, look, stop judging one another. Stop despising one another and looking down on each other as, hey, you're less spiritual than me because you do that. Or I'm more spiritual than you because I don't do that. And, and, and he said, look, therefore, almost as if he's summarizing what he's talked about in the first 12 verses for the fourth time. And you can go back and check it for the fourth time. Now he says again, stop judging one another. Do you get the concept that the Holy Spirit understands that whether we want to admit or not, we do this. We tend to judge one another. We tend to struggle in this area. So for the fourth time, he says in this time, verse 13, he says, let us not judge one another anymore indicating it's happening. So he says, but let's not do it anymore. He's asking here, here's that big Christian word many of us don't like, for repentance. He's saying we need to repent of this area that we're all prone to. And then he says, verse 13, the second half of it, but he says, rather, let's occupy ourselves with this instead. Let us resolve instead not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. So God says, instead of judging others, what we should do is seek to occupy ourselves with trying to use good judgment in regards to our own actions in relationship to the exercising of our Christian liberties. That this should be our goal. Notice he says there, verse 13, resolve this. Let this be your resolve. Let this be your primary goal in relation to exercising Christian liberties. And what he's going to do now as we go forward is address the Christian who feels the liberty and feels the freedom to participate in some of these areas where God gives us liberty and freedom to decide. And he's going to ask that Christian to consider the effect that the exercise of their liberty has upon other people around them. And to say, look, yes, you have the right to exercise that freedom, but that doesn't mean that you can negate the fact that when you exercise that freedom, it may impact somebody else. It may affect another Christian. It may have an influence on another person. So he says, if we're going to participate and exercise in some liberty of spiritual life, let us resolve, he says, there not to put a stumbling block 
or caused a fall in our brother's way. The word stumbling block, the term there means something that a person will trip over. In other words, something that will cause somebody to be knocked off balance spiritually where they start stumbling spiritually. He says, nor to put in front of someone by our example or our actions a cause to fall. The Greek term Paul uses there refers to a trap or a snare that entangles somebody. He's saying, look, be careful that the exercise of your freedom, hey, I have the right to do this. It doesn't bother me at all. Scripture doesn't address it. And and this is an area I have Christian freedom in. Well, yes, but he says, but is the exercise of that freedom, however, going to become something that causes maybe a weaker or maybe less mature Christian to get ensnared in sin? Where they then, seeing you do it, get confused and think, oh, well, maybe it's okay to do it, or now they're tempted to do something beyond what they're doing, and therefore it causes somebody to stumble or to actually get caught into sin. See, if I'm comfortable doing a certain thing, I still need to realize that that thing that I may be comfortable doing will influence other people. Because we all have influence on one another to some degree or another. And we have to realize that our exercise of a freedom may in turn stumble another believer who doesn't hold the same conviction as us. Or maybe they're weak in relation to that particular area where you have a freedom or liberty and are comfortable with. And my participating in some liberty, which I have no struggle with, can be a snare that then entangles another believer and causes them to struggle or fall spiritually. Again, for example... Using something very simplistic. You know, let's say that you have the liberty and, and comfortability between you and the Lord to drink a glass of wine with your dinner in, in your household. And, and, and that doesn't bother you an ounce. It doesn't affect you. You don't struggle with drunkenness. Or, and, and so you like a glass of wine with dinner. Well, let's say you have over dinner somebody who's a Christian, a fellow brother or sister who's a recovering alcoholic. And they struggle with drinking and it's been a big issue for them and they sit down together with you for dinner and you, you know, pour yourself a glass of wine. Well, listen, that liberty that you have has now become something that as they look at that and see that becomes a real struggle and a stumbling block for them. It can become something that's very difficult for them. It could be something very challenging. You know, as a leader, I choose, I opt to refrain from having any alcohol as a part of my life or my family life. And again, I'm a pastor. Let's say, for example, after church today, you happen to go to the same restaurant that I did uh, with my family to go out to lunch, and you arrive after I'm there, and there you see me having lunch at... I don't know if they sell it, having lunch at Cheeto Burrito and with my burrito, I got a Budweiser there. It's only one Budweiser and I'm 21 years old. Legally in this country, I have the right to drink. I can drink alcohol in this country. It's legal. Uh, Would that bother you a bit? Some of you say, well, it don't bother me. I understand the Bible. He's free in the drink. But somebody else, or what if they're a brand new Christian, may say, so Pastor Tony puts down Bud still? Hey, man, well, man, if you can pop a cold one, I, I can have a six-pack or I can have a keg on tap. I mean, he's popping bud and he's my spiritual leader. So all of a sudden, somebody may end up indulging and that may stumble them and trip them up. Listen, I have in, I'm a leader. I have influence. And we need to realize these very things because it can have an effect on one another. Again, maybe it doesn't bother you to watch a certain movie. 
And you can watch a rated R movie or watch this kind of, but, but what if you watching that movie or saying you watch that movie then becomes a stumbling block for someone else who just says, oh, if you watch that movie, that must mean that you watch all rated R movies. And so then that liberty that you exercise becomes then a stumbling block or a cause to fall. So we need to be careful in this area and always remembering this, that a liberty I have can entangle somebody else that they have a different conviction or maybe they have a spiritual weakness in an area where you're okay with and it's important to be sensitive and respectful about these things is what the Bible is saying. We have to be in love thinking about, look, I don't want to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in another brother's way in this area of exercising our Christian liberties. We have to be sensitive to this God would have us to be. He says, verse 14, I know, Paul says, and I'm convinced by the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything unclean, to him, Paul says, then it's unclean for him. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. So again, the Bible is saying here, just because you or I don't find anything wrong in our own heart, we can never disregard that doing something may, however, potentially harm another person. It could hurt them and cause difficulty in their life. Paul here in these verses is again addressing that specific issue that we looked at last week in the early part of the chapter of eating meat. He's saying here, look, I know, I'm convinced in my own heart that there's nothing unclean. But that was Paul's conviction. He says, but yet if your brother becomes grieved because of the food that you're eating, then he says, then that becomes not a good thing because then you can begin to harm another person and you're not walking in love towards them. Now, again, what Paul's talking about just briefly is, remember last week we talked about that in that culture, there were many pagan gods that were worshipped and there were there were altars to other gods and idols that were worshipped and people would bring down a sacrifice and then the sacrificed meat on that altar to Zeus or to whoever was then taken and sold down in the same meat markets and people understood that. So for some people, they felt like, I can't eat that meat from the meat market because that might have been offered to Zeus and if I eat that meat, then that means I'm financing activities that participate with and condone and endorse the worship of Zeus. And so some people, they felt convinced, I can't eat that. Or I feel like I'm being one with that. I'm not going to finance it. So some people refrained and they ate only vegetables. Other people, they looked at it as, you know, what's the, it's just a hamburger patty. Who cares? It's a piece of meat. I don't care about Zeus. Zeus isn't even real. God's the one true God. And so other people could eat me. Paul's saying that's what his conviction is here. Notice that's what he's saying. He says that he's admitting that he had no struggle with eating that meat. It wasn't something that bothered him. He said he was convinced in his own heart. That's what he's saying. Verse 14. He says, I know and I'm convinced by the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean of itself. That was Paul's conviction. Jesus had directly addressed this issue in his own teaching. Mark 7, Jesus said, there is nothing that enters a man from the outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him. These are the things that defile a man. Jesus said, do you not perceive whatever enters a man enters into his stomach and then it's eliminated, purifying all foods. So Jesus 
spoke of this purification and that food doesn't defile the person. Jesus then said, whatever, however, comes out of a man. He said, these are the thing that defile a man from, from within his heart proceed evil thoughts and adulteries and fornications and thefts and murders and covetousness and wickedness, deceit and lewdness and evil eye and blasphemy and pride and foolishness. Jesus says that's what defiles a person. Not what goes into their stomach and through their intestinal tract and out the back door. Jesus said, no, it's what's in a person's heart. That's what's gross. That's what's gross. And isn't it amazing how we can get all preoccupied in these externals and totally neglect what's going on in the human heart. So Paul says, look, I'm convinced by the Lord Jesus, there's nothing clean, uh, unclean in and of itself. Paul took the direct word of Jesus on the matter, which I always think that's the best thing to do if you're going to develop a conviction. Paul said, Jesus said it's clean. I'm, I'm, I'm cool with it then. doesn't bother me. However, I want you to see this. Paul understood the grace of God for himself. Paul was settled in his own convictions. But Paul, in maturity, also knew that not everybody was at the same place where he was at spiritually. That's called Christian maturity. Because Paul says, verse 14, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it's still unclean. This is Christian maturity. Paul said the person who struggles and has a weak conscience or is offended by eating that meat, they feel guilty or convicted or it makes them feel uncomfortable in their own conscience. Then Paul said, then to him it's unclean. What he's saying is if they believe it's wrong, then it's wrong for them. If to them it's still wrong, then I need to realize that it is still wrong for them right now in their own conscience before God because it's not good to violate your conscience over any matter because God gave you your conscience and God speaks to you in your conscience and it's never good to not be sensitive to your conscience. Paul then addresses the stronger and mature believer in relation to this. Paul says, okay, you're a stronger, more mature believer. He says, verse 15, yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you're no longer walking in love. So what Paul's saying is if a Christian exercises some liberty and it results in grieving and bothering another believer, but they then just persist in doing what they want to do anyway because it's their liberty to do it, then Paul says if you persist doing something that you know is bothering and grieving another Christian, he says from God's perspective, that's not acting in love. That becomes selfish then. And see, sometimes this happens where believers will exercise liberties in certain areas and they walk in that liberty as they have the freedom to do. But then what happens is sometimes they will discover, hey, this is, this is grieving. It's, it's bothering my fellow Christian or it's stumbling another brother or sister in Christ. And, and they become aware of that. But here's what happens for I see sometimes. Sometimes the attitude becomes, that's their issue. That's their issue. I don't have a problem with it. They need to get over it. Look, I want to dress like this. If they're gawking at me, that's their issue. That's their issue. They got a lust problem. You know, hey, I have the freedom to drink alcohol. If somebody's going to misinterpret that, that that's their issue. They, they're the one with the problem. I have the freedom to do this. That's their issue. But God says, it's our issue. He says it is our issue because God says it's an issue of spiritual maturity. It's an issue of love. It's an issue of caring about people and loving people 
rather than always just having my own way and saying, you know, it's not all about just what I want and persisting in what I want with no consideration or compassion for other people. He says, if I'm not considering or having compassion on other people in what I'm doing when it bothers them, then God says, then that's wrong. He says here in this verse, then that's not walking in love. He says, if your brothers grieve because of what you're doing and whatever the liberty is, he says, then you're no longer walking in love anymore. Again, we saw in our earlier study, last chapter, that it said love does no harm to its neighbor. Love doesn't harm people. It doesn't hurt people. Hey, question this morning. Is there some area of your Christian relationships where maybe you've disregarded the impact or the influence of what you're doing upon someone else? If so, I would encourage you to realize you may not be walking in love in that situation. And what God cares about above all else and how we relate to each other is love. Paul says to the Colossians, Colossians 3.14, but above all these things put on love, which is the bond, the capstone of perfection or maturity. Peter said the same thing, above all things have fervent love for one another. Paul says here at the end of verse 15, look what he says, do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. His emphasis, we should never allow some right or freedom to indulge some liberty to destroy. The idea is to damage or to tear down a person whom Jesus greatly loves and greatly values is very important. Paul seeks to put the issue in healthy perspective here for us so we'd have a proper attitude in relation to exercising our Christian liberties. The person who's struggling over what I'm comfortable doing, Paul's saying they're important to Jesus. So important, he says, verse 15, that they are someone whom Christ died for. Here's the point Paul's trying to drive home, that Jesus denied himself and sacrificed greatly on that person's behalf. In fact, Jesus surrendered and denied his own will even to the place of personal death so that that person could be benefited and helped out spiritually. And since that's the case, how selfish then is it if I demand my will and right and can't make the smallest personal sacrifice to not do something so that I can help somebody else out or in love not stumble them to some degree? How uncaring and dishonorable is it to destroy and damage a person who Jesus loved enough to die for just so I can have my steak dinner? That's what Paul's saying there. Because this is what was going on. Hey, I want my steak dinner. And Paul says, look, are you going to destroy somebody else who Jesus died for? For the sake of your steak dinner? And again, we can implement anything into that theoretically. Any of these liberties, you know, the freedom to, again, drink alcohol or watch certain movies or hold certain practices or to dress a certain way or, again, all these different areas. We can at times say, hey, I have the right to do this, but look, is it really that critical And would the Lord say, yeah, it's so important, it doesn't matter if you shipwreck somebody else in the process. No, the Bible's saying they're very important to Jesus. As it pertains to exercising personal freedom spiritually, 
We should remember three things these verses are telling us. Number one, not everybody is where I'm at spiritually. Always remember that in the area of Christian liberties. Not everybody is where I'm at spiritually. And I should be respectful and sensitive of that. Secondly, loving people should matter more than doing what I want. Loving people should matter more than just being able to have the freedom to do what I want. And thirdly, people are so valuable to Jesus, he sacrificed and died to help people. So if he sacrificed and died to help people, certainly sometimes I can make some small sacrifices to help people and not harm people and destroy people because of my liberties. He goes on, verse 16, to say, Therefore do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, don't allow this wonderful, good privilege to, under the grace of God, exercise Christian liberties. He says, don't let that good privilege that God has blessed us with as Christians become the source of criticism against the Christian faith. We have to remember, Paul saying, that as Christians, we represent Christ. We represent Jesus in everything we do. So how we live and what we do is something that people are going to make judgments about. They're going to evaluate your lifestyle. They're going to look at the things you do as a representative of Jesus. And they're going to connect to that. This is what it means to be a Christian or this is what Christianity is about. And Paul's saying we don't want to allow some liberty that we have the right to do to be something that becomes a basis for evil speculation about the Lord or evil speculation about what it means to follow him. He's saying, let us be more interested in the Lord's reputation than the right to exercise some freedom. That we'd be more zealous for, you know what? Yeah, I have. Yeah, I know I have the liberty to do this. But if that's going to tarnish Jesus' reputation, I won't do it. Because I care more about my Lord's glory and people looking at Jesus favorably and coming to Jesus than I do having the right that I have to do something. That's what he's saying here. Don't let some right you have to pursue be something that becomes a basis for then evil speculation towards Christianity or the faith. Paul says, for the kingdom of God, verse 17, is not eating and drinking, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So he's reminding us of the kingdom of God, what it's really about and what it's not really about. He says it's not about rule-keeping and regulations, but rather it's about relationship with God and experiencing the Holy Spirit in our lives. He says it's not about what we eat. It's not about whether or not we drink a glass of wine. It's not what external regulations and observances we follow. Rather, it's about the internal matters of the heart. It's about what's going on in our heart, which is much more important. Things like, he says, righteousness and peace and joy from living under the influence of the Holy Spirit. He says that's what spiritual life's to be about. It's what God's foremost concerned about. And he says what matters most to God is not what little laws and rituals and observances we can keep, but what matters most to God is are we living in a way whereby we are living, being directed and ruled by the Spirit of God, living in the Holy Spirit where we're experiencing and exhibiting things like righteousness, which means to be right before God and to be right with our fellow man, 
because of the way that we relate to each other in love. Things like peace, being at peace with God, that I've made a, 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 an acknowledgement of my sin and I've received Christ's forgiveness and that I've come into a right relationship with God through accepting Jesus as my Savior and that I'm experiencing the peace of God in my life because I'm not doing something that's questionable that God's not really too thrilled about what I'm doing. And that I would be experiencing by the Holy Spirit joy, he says, in our lives. And again, let me say, as I've said before, joy is not the same thing as happiness. Many Christians want to put together happiness and joy. They're two different things. Happiness is a feeling that is dependent upon circumstances. Okay? I get an unexpected check in the mail or bonus or something. Well, I'm happy. Then my car breaks down. And it costs $2 less than the check I just got in the mail. Now I'm not happy. In two hours, I can go from happy to unhappy. That's happiness. Joy is something different. Joy is something experienced by the Spirit of God. Joy is internal delight and pleasure that exists in the human heart out of gratitude and contentment that you find in your relationship with God. That's something from the Holy Spirit. It's something that's experienced through a relationship with Jesus Christ as you walk in the power of the Spirit. Paul says, verse 18, going on, for he who serves Christ in these things, what things? Righteousness and peace and joy by living a life in the Holy Spirit. He who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. So the Bible shows, again, it's serving Jesus Christ that puts us in right relationship with God and fellow men. Notice the term there, he who serves Christ. That's what spiritual life's about. It's about serving Christ. Sometimes our need to exercise a liberty in our life, let's be very candid, is quite self-serving. And even devoutly religious people who may have strict convictions and observe all their rituals can still be very unloving people, what I've seen. There are going to be people who keep very strict religious lifestyles, but yet they're very unloving still. And the reason sometimes is, is because they're observing Christian routines and Christian rituals, but they're not serving Christ. Because when you're serving Christ, then out of your love for Jesus and your awareness that you're going to be accountable to Jesus, you'll be concerned about things like righteousness making sure you're right with God and wanting to live in a way where you're right with other people around you. You'll be interested in experiencing peace from Christ. You'll be interested in rejoicing in the Lord and able to find joy and fulfillment in your relationship with Jesus and serving Him rather than needing to indulge every single liberty that you're allowed to. And that's the difference of serving Christ. He says, he who serves Christ in these things will have approval from God, will have acceptance from God, because that's what matters, and will have even, he says, the admiration of fellow man. We will be approved by men. Why? Because sometimes people will appreciate and respect you when they realize that you sometimes forego certain liberties that you do have because you care more about the things of the kingdom of God or people than you do just having the right to do whatever it is. 
He says, verse 19, therefore, let us pursue those things which make for peace. And the things, he says, by which one may edify another. So as it comes to freedoms and exercising our liberties, Paul says, this should be the goal that we're maintaining peace and that we're trying to edify and build others up. Again, it's never a good thing if I exercise some Christian liberty and the result of me exercising that liberty causes division with someone who strongly disagrees with my conviction. To have that freedom, yes, I have it, but if it's just going to cause division and tear people down and disrupt peace, then I have to ask myself sometimes, here's the question, is it really worth it? Is my right to be able to, is it really worth it? Really? Is it, is it worth ruining a relationship? Is, is the difference of conviction that I have that's so strong to have some liberty, is it really worth causing conflict with another believer? Is it really worth causing division in my marriage or division in the church over convictions? Is, is it really that essential? He says we should pursue those things that edify. That should be our goal. We should filter what we do and don't do in life as Christians, the Bible says, with this goal in mind. Is this going to build other people up or tear other people down? That should be the filter that we use. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 10 says in relation to exercising liberties and freedoms. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 and 24, listen to it. All things are lawful, which means permissible. There's freedom and grace. All things are lawful or permissible for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. So here's what God's saying. God's saying some things in life may be permissible to do, but they may not be that constructive. We may have the permission and freedom from God and good conscience to do certain things between us and God, but sometimes maturity and love says, you know what, yeah, I know I have the freedom to do this, but I don't know if that's going to be the most helpful thing. Sometimes it may not be the most helpful thing for me. Look, if you have a particular struggle or area of spiritual weakness, you need to realize sometimes, yeah, I have the freedom to do this, but for me, that wouldn't be very helpful because it would send me off the wagon real quick. That's maturity. And the same way in relating to one another. So the right question in the area of Christian liberty is this. Listen, it's not, can I do it? It's, is it worth it? It's not, can I do it? But is it worth it? See, in this area of alcohol, this is where I find people asking crazy questions. Well, so then how much can, I know I should, I'm not, I can't get drunk, that's sin. But I have the freedom to drink. So then you start asking stupid questions. So how much can I drink? Is it 1.3 beers? Is it 3.2 beers? And where's the Christian buzz line? I mean, when does, you see, you start asking crazy questions. The question should be not always can I do it, but is it worth it? Is it really worth it for you, for the sake of others? Look how Paul goes on, verse 21 or 20, he says, Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it's evil for the man who eats with offense. It's neither good to eat meat 
nor to drink wine, nor to do anything, Paul says, which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Take notice here. You say, boy, this is getting repetitious. Got it. The Holy Spirit, again, repetitiously uses the same phrases for emphasis for us here because it's a sobering reality. It should be a sobering thing to think about. Don't ignore the language there in verse 20. It's a sobering thing to think about destroying the work of God in another person's life just because we indulge some freedom that we have. That's a sobering thing that another believer could be stumbled or slip or fail or fall back into sin because of some liberty that I want to indulge and they know I indulge it or they see me indulge it or they watch you participate and, and, and you could shipwreck somebody else's faith. That's tragic. Or what about the unbeliever? Maybe we have certain liberties in certain areas and we understand the grace of God as Christians and so we participate in certain areas. But look, an unbeliever who has no concept of scripture or spiritual things, they're debating whether or not and trying to figure out if they want to follow Jesus Christ by watching your life. And so then you exercise some liberty in front of them and they, what? He calls himself a follower of Jesus and he does what? He watches what? He, and all of a sudden, boom, they throw up a wall in their heart towards the Lord, a wall of resistance. Forget this Christian thing. And they have this drastic judgment on what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And they turn away from Jesus because of some petty thing that really does not matter in the eternal scope. But it's something that destroys the work of God that was starting to happen in their heart as they were watching you as a Christian and they interpreted what they saw you do in a way that becomes very damaging to them. This is a sobering reality. That's why he says, verse 21, a good principle to live by is not to eat meat, drink wine, he says, or do anything by which a brother could stumble or be offended or made weak. He says, it's a good principle that we don't do things or try not to do things if we know someone else is going to be stumbled by seeing us doing it. Or if someone else could maybe be offended by knowing we did or even aroused in temptation to sin in the weakness of their flesh where they fall into something unhealthy. The question arises, and I know it comes with a section of scripture like this in proper balance. Well, wait a minute here. Wait, hold on a minute here. Are you trying to tell me that that means I have to cater to every single person's weak, sensitive conscience over every matter of life? I'll say this, and it's my conviction, so you can throw it out if you want. I'll say this. I don't think that's what the Bible's teaching here. I don't think the Bible's saying that we need to go way out of balance and cater to every single person's little conviction and sensitivity to this. The Bible says we're not to be slaves of men, but servants of Christ. The Bible says that we'd be finding out what is acceptable to the Lord and that we answer to the Lord. And keep in mind, if you study the Gospels, Jesus himself at certain times did things on occasion who was God in love in the flesh. Jesus did things at times that offended sometimes the strong opinions and convictions of some of the religious leaders. Did he not? 
and some of the cultural uh, convictions of the day. So I think there may be at times, as we walk in the Spirit, occasions where we let the error, maybe in another person's spirit, arouse their spirit a little bit at times, so maybe they might reconsider their position about something. Look, in these areas, this doesn't become a place where we camp on and the legalistic believer says, look, see that? You shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing this. Well, then we must drag legalism back into the church and throw out the message of grace. What he's describing here is the reality is Christian maturity is the goal. Christian maturity is the goal. We all should be growing up and everybody needs to grow. Paul says in Hebrews 13, do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. See, yes, we are to walk in love and Christian maturity, but there also is a place where a believer who is legalistic is to grow in their understanding of the grace of God too. We're all to be growing up together and maturing together. I think the point that Paul's emphasizing in this section is that we should be willing sometimes to adjust for love's sake. And the person who's spiritually mature should be the person who's willing to yield at times. So therefore, sometimes a spiritually mature person, when appropriate to help out another believer or maybe someone who's newer in the faith will temporarily accommodate their weakness in love and say, you know what, I'm not going to do that in front of them because that would stumble them. And for love's sake, until they mature a bit or have a different perspective, I I'm not going to do that because that would stumble them. That would weaken them. And if there's anything like that, sometimes, again, we have to ask, is it really necessary? Is it really worth it? He says, seek to be sensitive to these things. And look how he concludes in these latter verses, 22 and 23. He says, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. So the idea here, he's saying, if you do have faith that allows you to be comfortable with a certain freedom, notice, have it to yourself before God. Here's what he's saying. If you believe that it is okay to do something, keep it between yourself and God. These are areas, he says, conviction, which is a firmly held belief or view or opinion about a matter. God's saying it's okay to hold convictions. Everybody has them. We have the freedom and liberty to hold convictions, but God's saying it doesn't mean you have to broadcast your convictions. It doesn't mean you have to publicize your convictions. Some convictions are better held just privately between you and Jesus. And lived out between you and Jesus. The existence of various convictions are going to be there because you have different people with different backgrounds at different stages of spiritual maturity with different viewpoints. And it may be you hold a conviction that it's okay to do something. It may be that you hold a conviction that it's not right to do something. And so you would never do that. Either case, here's what Scripture advises on different convictions just try and keep them between you and God. He's reminding us here not to force our convictions on other people. We shouldn't be trying to force our convictions on other people. And more than that, nor do I need or you need to exercise your freedoms all the time. 
especially in the presence of other people. Maybe you have the freedom to do something. But love says sometimes what you may have the freedom to do in the privacy of your own home when no one else is watching, maybe you would say, but you know what? In the presence of that person, I'm not going to do that because love says that I shouldn't. Let me say this in relation to alcohol. I think as a parent, if you're raising kids, you should think about that. Maybe it's okay for you to drink alcohol. Maybe you understand. You understand the grace of God. But can I ask you a question? As you bring alcohol into your home and you drink in front of your children, what impact and influence is that having on your children who has a less mature understanding of things and sees you as their parent drinking alcohol? We need to consider these things. These are critical matters in relation to spiritual life. Look how Paul concludes. He says, Happy is he who does not condemn himself in the things that he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith for whatever is not from faith is sin. What Paul's saying here is we should only participate in liberties that we have settled conscience about, that we have faith before the Lord that something is okay. The point of these latter few verses here, Paul's trying to say is this. If or when in doubt... Don't. If you have doubt about something, question about something, if you can't do something in Christian liberty without being concerned or questioning it, if you can't do something or if you do something and it leaves you feeling convicted or condemned as if you've done something wrong before God, then Paul's saying it's probably better to just refrain in that area. If you have doubt about it, he's saying don't transgress your conscience. Notice to transgress... Our conscience and the testimony of our conscience, Paul says, is sin. He says, whatever is not from faith is sin. In other words, if you can't do something believing in your heart before God, it's okay and it's acceptable. Then he says, then for you, it's wrong. For you, it's wrong. If you can't in good faith do something without feeling questionable or guilty about it, then for you, it is wrong. And it would be sin to transgress your conscience. Why? Because if you're doing things and you're transgressing your own conscience, you're training yourself, it's obey, okay to disobey God. That's not a good thing. What we should do is educate ourselves with the Scripture over time and let our convictions be conformed to the Scriptures, but never go against your own conscience in regards to things in life. Even if you see another Christian doing it, and it's okay for them. Or even if another Christian tells you, hey, it's okay to do this. Come on, man, you, you can do this. Look, please hear me. If it's not your conviction yet, don't do it. Because you're transgressing your conscience, which is testifying to you about something, and you are then training yourself to say, it's okay to disobey God because that Christian says it's okay. Be careful. I leave you with this statement again. Just because you may have the right to do something is not an indication that it's right to do it. True? Let's stand. Let's pray.